Hello, my name is Lori Ellis, and I'm a writer and editor with Pharma Intelligence. Today, I'm here with Mui Van Zandt, VP and GM, Real World Data and Tech at IQVIA, to discuss successful real world data curation and quality. I want to thank you, Mui, for joining me today. So welcome. And let's go to the first question. So what are the parameters the FDA has framed out as considerations for data accuracy? And additionally, what other factors do you feel should be included? Well, thank you, Laurie, for the introduction and thanks for the time today. Um, if you look at, you know, what FDA has framed out as consideration for data accuracy, it's really around standardization and transparency of the data um, that's being submitted to FDA, as well as being used for clinical studies, as well as research. And what are the some of the things that, why do they want such thing, right? It's because if you look at the data that we have out there in real world, because real world and data, uh, real world data nowadays, we have so much of it. And it's become so hard to better understand which data is suitable for what, and which data can you trust? Thus, why the framework that and the parameters that FDA wants is to enable researchers, regulatory agents, as well as anyone who uses this data to be able to better understand the purpose of the data, the use of the data, and the ins and outs of what it can and cannot do. Okay. Um, let me give you an example, for example, right? Claims databases, um, claims data, their insurance data. And when you look at insurance data, they are great to better understand patient longitudinality because they um, hold a patient's journey throughout their life within an insurance company. Okay. However, that database is really meant for uh, insurance to really better understand um, where the uh, patient has been, like what services did they uh, get from a medical facility or what services did they get for uh, drugs and pharmacy, right? So it doesn't go into details of the actual results of any tests or any labs that they did because that really doesn't, isn't needed when it comes to did they actually go get a test? Right. Because they're only charging for the actual procedure of running the test and doing the test, but doesn't uh, go and charge for the result that you are tested positive for COVID. Right. So thus claims data isn't exactly as useful when you want to study something that requires you understanding the results of a lab test. Right. Now, what are some of the additional factors that I feel is necessary in the considerations that FDA has framed out? I think there needs to be a bit more guidance around how do we how should we standardize and how far should our transparency go? Right. Because if you look at if you just ask for standardization, I can take standardization to the nth degree. Right. But what is good enough? And how far shall we go as far as same as how transparent should we go? Because, again, we can go very, very deep. However, if we go too deep, then have we disclosed too much privacy information about a patient? Right. So there has to be some boundaries that are set 
when we are looking at the parameters that FDA has defined. And I'm not too sure that it's as clearly as it should be defined in those FDA parameters. So speaking of, how should data quality be defined? The FDA mentions the use of a data quality framework. Can you elaborate on this framework? So data quality, right? Uh, it's a great question, right, from what I just talked about, data quality, because of the fact that we have all this different data out there, we really need to develop some standardized data quality that folks can utilize. In the FDA guidance, they do talk about, you know, a framework for data quality using verification and validation as two of the main categories. And underneath, they're having subcategories. There's been a lot of papers and a lot of publication, a lot of talk about data quality. And, and like I said earlier, you do have to define uh, a, a boundary of how far you go with data quality because you can't say data quality uh, as a broad term applies equally across all the different uses of this data. Because at times when you use the data for, let's just say, clinical trial, what you need from a data quality standpoint is very different than when you want it to be used on a, on a clinical research side, like a retrospective study. The, the amount of quality that your data needs varies. Thus, your data quality framework needs to be a bit dynamic, adaptive, and flexible um, and provide the information for the users, but let the users decide whether or not they believe based on the evidence and based on the data that they get from your data quality reports is suitable to answer the question that they want, right? So in certain cases, like I just mentioned earlier about claims, right? Again, another example, right? Claims data doesn't have uh, uh, lab results. And in our data quality, we should state that. Right. We shouldn't ding claims because they don't have lab results. Right. But we put that as part of the data quality framework to say that this type of data is missing. But is that missing good or bad? It really depends on your research question. If I am looking at a treatment pathway uh, for a patient, I don't need labs. Okay, I just need drugs. So at that point in time, claims may be good enough or that particular claims database might be good enough. So that's why I don't, uh, it's okay to use that, right? And the data quality framework can tell me that. Um, as well as how far does the data quality framework even go? Um, even down to the specific, let's again, talking about labs. Do I need to standardize all my lab values for one lab? That'd be great because uh, it makes it so much easier to be able to do research for. However, the amount of work that it takes for a team to clean that up is so huge. So then you have to look at the return on investment versus the benefit that you get from that, right? But as part of the data quality framework, if you spell that out to say, hey, this data asset doesn't go that far versus this data asset does, then again, it's not that this one is better than the other one. It's more of here's the pros and cons and here's some of the things that this one doesn't, that one doesn't do. Right. So the researcher and the person using the data can then decide what they want to do with it. And they go in knowingly what 
the caveats are and what the restrictions are to the real world data asset that they're going to use. Okay, so then what data standardization exists and what are the challenges? And then taking that a little bit further, how does one choose the right standardization? Oh my goodness, I can go on probably for a long time on this topic, although I could probably do that for every single one of these as well. Um, there are a lot of different type of data standardizations out there, right? There's the OMOP CDM from the Odyssey community. There's the FIRE uh, HS7 from the FIRE community. There's I2P2. There's the CORNET. There's the Sentinel model. Of course, we can't forget on the clinical trial side, we got CDISC as well. Um, so there's a lot of these different models that are out there and in different regions as well, um, uh, not just in the United States, but different regions of the country also have different models uh, that they can utilize. And each one has their benefits versus some of them, you know, has it's no different than data quality and data assets. Right. Each one has certain benefits. Each one has certain flaws. For example, the OMOP CDM is. Uh, standardized not only the uh, the data model itself, but it also standardized the ontology that you utilize uh, when you do research. However, in order to actually uh, put your data into that format, you spend a lot more time up front doing that curation work, doing that cleaning work, because it's such a comprehensive uh, standardization. Right. Fire, on the other hand, it's a great um, model in for transmitting EHR data and it's XML. So it's not relational and it's not in a relational database. So it's great to show the entire patient um, history in one record instead of in, you know, in a normal database. You have it split out into so many different tables. Um, but again, the disadvantage of that is. It is XML. So when you want to be able to do research with it, it makes it very complex to utilize. It makes the analysis a lot slower because you're you're having to parse through all this. Right. And in fire, they don't standardize the ontology. So your ontology is whatever the, the, the code that's inside the database. So if you're trying to do this across multiple countries, like in the United States and Germany, you're going to have to understand both coding languages in order to write a analytical package that goes across both of them. Right. So so some of them really you get a lot more. You actually have to spend a lot more time at the front doing the curation like the OMOP CDM. But then the analysis because becomes a lot simpler as well as you can standardize a lot of that. Um, because they're using the same model and the same ontology, right? So you can easily send that analytical package to multiple people and run and know that that information is the same. Versus others, you don't have to spend so much time up front like FIRE, like I2B2, like the Sentinel models and CDISC, right? But you have to spend a lot more time on the uh, analytical side. Now, you know, which one is the right ones to choose? Um, again, I know this sounds uh, uh, like a, a repeated, I'm repeating myself. It really depends, though, because it really depends on what you're using it for. 
Right. Like I mentioned earlier, fire is really used for transmission of EHR records. So to standardize in that, if that is your use case, that is a great uh, use of that particular uh, model. Right. CDISC is used for clinical trials and it collects a lot of information specifically tied to the use of clinical trials. Right. The, the, a lot of patient information that's necessary in order to understand the patient while they're sitting inside a clinical trial. Versus the LMAC CDM is used for observational research and retrospective research and database, secondary u- database studies. Okay. So those are great for utilizing in that scenario. Um, to give you an example of like the difference, right? In CDIS, they may capture the, the, the database itself and the data itself is only tied to just the patients you have, right? The patients you have in a clinical trials, typically you wouldn't have a million patients in there. Okay. You might have a few hundred thousand, but you wouldn't have a million patients in there. So the, the, the model doesn't have to be at a high computational level where you have to run it over millions and billions of transactions, right? So it's not going to be designed to run across, you know, billions and millions of transactions. Thus, uh, its, its use is very limited from that perspective. Versus when you look at the OMOP CDM model, that is meant to run across multiple and billions and billions of records, even trillions, right? So the design of that database model is designed where it is very efficient to execute as well. Um, so those are some of the different technical and non-technical reasons of when you would choose which one to utilize. Okay, so you talk about efficiency. So then what are the issues that are most common with data capture or processing? And then what steps should a sponsor put into place to avoid the pitfalls? There's a lot. There's a lot of different pitfalls, right? And there, there's not some of them you can do something about. Some of them you can't because to do to deal with all the different pitfalls, you actually have to go back to the source of the data. Right. So when you look at different data assets or different data types like EMR data, EHR data, claims data, registry data, right, or patient reported data, you actually have to go back to the source. EHR systems capture this data for EHR reasons, for hospital reasons. Right. So they don't capture it for the purpose of so I can study them later. Right. They're capturing it because they need that information right now on that patient and what's going on with that patient right now. Right. That's why we call some of this data secondary use after the fact. Right. So thus you're during the time when you look at it, like, for example, you know, an EHR, uh, a patient goes into the ER and they uh, need some assistance. A lot of times doctors are going to type all that in the notes. They're not going to sit there and nicely format everything for you. They're just going to type everything in the notes and say, hey, this patient X, Y, and Z, one, two, and three. And then the next person adds more to that. They just keep piling it up and adding to the notes. Ultimately, at the end of all your, uh, you know, journey through the ER, they will discharge you and they'll put a reason why you were discharged and they'll tell you, oh, it's because you were diagnosed with X, Y, and Z, right? But that data that's in the notes is very valuable, 
because it shows it can define, oh, they went in because of a certain drug uh, overdose. And they'll tell you exactly uh, what that overdose was or exactly the brand name of the overdose, the amount that they overdosed by, what are some of the symptoms that they had because of the overdose. However, for us, when it comes to database studies and real-world evidence uh, and real-world data, we actually then have to go and curate that data. But to curate handwritten notes takes a lot, right? So a lot of our data assets don't have things like that. A lot of the data, really, you don't go down to that level of finite of detail. Um, we just capture the, we just utilize the ones that they put. This person had a drug overdose, right? And that's it. Um, but like I said, the other stuff is very useful. So in order to fix some of that, you actually have to then go back to the, the HR systems, work with them, either enhance the systems so that they can then better utilize the, the entries of the information so it's not so cumbersome because I'm sure most of you guys use an order entry form before. Having to fill things out in, in boxes sometimes gets so annoying. You're like, I don't want to fill this out. I just want to type something in here, right? Um, so we have to think about the mentality of the people that's keying this stuff in. Um, that's one. one. That's actually a very, very huge pitfall, right, of data uh, in the real world space. A second one that a lot of people think about is the missingness of data. So again, every there's always data that's missing. But how do you correct that? You really can't, right? Because you don't know whether or not it's missing. How do you know whether or not the data was really missing? Just because you don't see it there, does it really mean that it was missing? Or did, does it really mean that it didn't happen? So uh, in those scenarios, you have to make certain assumptions when you're doing your research, right? And you typically spell those caveats out to say, hey, I assume that by the fact that this piece of information isn't there, then it didn't happen. Thus, I'm going to put my uh, continue my conclusion and continue my research based on that assumption that it wasn't there. Right. Now, there are, again, lots of other stuff, like I mentioned earlier, labs, right? Labs. My goodness. That 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 is always a mess. Uh, again, most labs, you typically have uh, a field that are in the systems to key in what labs have been taking. But the results that come back from the lab, there's no standardization for that. People type in whatever they want, whatever they want. Sometimes there may be uh, some standardization against it, but a lot of times there isn't. Right. And then if you add in the different countries. So in the United States, we go by inches and feet when we try to measure someone's height. Right. Uh, in the UK, they go by meters. Right. Here, temperature is always in Fahrenheit. Over there, it's in Celsius. So when you're doing that, especially when you're doing global research, you either have to translate the two or you're just going to have to pick two standards in order to do your research itself. Um, but lab is very messy. It, that, that's just a small portion of what I just mentioned about vitals. Right. But lab itself is very messy because you just have people really keying in a number without even putting the unit in and. Sometimes, you know, maybe that number doesn't really make sense either because they typed it. Right. So if you look at like our temperature, 
our temperature in the U.S., you typically range between 97 to maybe 102, 103. If you go over that, then, then we have a big problem, right? You don't go that high. But, you know, somebody might typo it, reverse the 90, 98, uh, 96 and type 69. But in the system, there's, it doesn't check it to say, hey, you need to enter something in between this range. So then you end up getting 69 as a temperature. And you, when you're doing research, you're like, huh? I'm not too sure if I should include this person in my research or not. So those are some of the data quality, you know, checks that I mentioned earlier in the FDA framework that can be utilized to help, um, you know, uh, filter out some of these, right? Especially when we're talking about the use of real world data. There's so much real world data out there and a lot of real world data we collect, you're in the trillions. We're not in the millions. We're not in the billions. We're in the trillions. So therefore, taking out one or two records isn't that critical to a research, right? So thus, you know, what do you do when you have these anomalies? You, you really have to look at the frequency of how often you have these anomalies and the bigger picture of does it really impact my overall data if I yanked out, let's just say, 100,000 records, right? 100,000 records sounds like a lot if you just think about it, right? But if you put it in perspective of a trillion record, 100,000 record isn't that much, right? So those are the things that some of our folks and some of the sponsors need to think about. How to avoid these pitfalls, right? Can I remove records? Because I've heard a lot about people going, hey, I don't want to take away anything because I need every single piece of data there is. It's true. But when you think about the proportion, the statistical, you know, proportion of the fact that that 100,000 only represents 0.00001% of your patients and that causes you less problems in your analysis and causes you less issues with your fluctuation of your actual results, then you may want to take that out. Right. So so those are some of the different ways to really some of the common problems we have, as well as some of the you know pitfalls to avoid it. Really, it goes back to, you know, the data quality framework that the FDA put in there. If we had a framework in place that everybody can utilize to better understand what exists in the data versus what doesn't exist in the data and what are the percentage, if there is a problem, what's that percentage of the data that has that problem, then it allows the researchers to better utilize the data for the purposes that they need. And we won't go into these little one-offs to say, oh, my goodness, I'm losing data, right? I hear that a lot. I'm losing data because you've standardized it. But how much of it are you losing, right? So, again, I think it really comes back to how to avoid it is through systematic uh, frameworks such as the data quality framework and making that very transparent to folks who do this type of research. Well, thank you, Mui Van Zandt, for taking the time to have this conversation with me today. To learn more about real-world data and the regulatory landscape, please listen to our other podcasts discussing the FDA's guidance on real-world data use, quality, and benefits. I would also like to thank the sponsor of this podcast, Acuvia, for making this great discussion possible.